Hello, welcome back to another quarantine edition of Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Max Frost, and joining me as always are my two co-hosts, Max Tui and Matt Weinstein. Max, thank you for that. And we are all united together over Zoom here, and we're united with you as we speak to Ryan Berg today on the pandemic and how it is affecting the region that he studies at AEI, Latin America. Ryan is a recurring guest on Banter. This is now his third appearance. But if this is your first time tuning in, he's a research fellow here at AEI, where, as Tui said, he focuses on Latin America. He's a Fulbright scholar who lived in Brazil for a time. He was a research consultant at the World Bank, and he holds a PhD from the University of Oxford. We are delighted to have him back with us today. And without further ado, here is Ryan Berg. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Ryan, thank you for coming on. Guys, it's always a pleasure to be on Banter. Thanks for having me on the new, improved, and better than ever iteration of this podcast. Ryan, thank you for (laughs) saying what we paid you to say just now. (laughs) I hope the pesos are worth it. All right. (laughs) So, Ryan, um, all the focus now is on the United States and Europe, but I've been reading just different warnings about how the developing world is probably going to get devastated by the coronavirus as well. How much is it affecting Latin America right now? And is the data reliable enough to even really know how bad it is? I think that we can say confidently that the coronavirus is causing significant disruptions in Latin America. Uh, Latin America, by uh, pretty much every measure, is one of the hardest hit regions uh, in the world. So it's got major countries that are um, approaching this uh, in ways that uh, many public health officials are questioning. I'm speaking specifically of countries like Brazil uh, or Mexico. Um, which were late uh, in the game to, uh, to, to, to move to uh, stay-at-home uh, measures. In Brazil, there still is no uh, sort of federal guidance. It is, uh, much like the United States, a, a state-by-state uh, approach with the president himself uh, very much in favor of, uh, of lifting restrictions and, and getting back to normal. Mexico was largely the same. Uh, it was a very late response. Things didn't happen until uh, late April. Um, and Much of the data that we've seen coming out of places like Mexico and Brazil and also uh, Ecuador is another country that's been hit particularly hard, shows that there are high numbers of of cases. There was also a study that came out on Mexico a few days ago that said their case numbers, which show about 24,000 cases so far, could be eight times higher uh, than what what is uh, showing publicly right now. And there was another study by a university in Brazil uh, which has the largest number of cases in Latin America that shows that their caseload could be as high as the United States. So the answer to your question is no, we're not getting uh, perfect uh, data, but this is a problem not just in the developing world, but also uh, in the developed world, uh, as we've seen. You talk a bit about Brazil. There's a terrific article in the Wall Street Journal, um, either yesterday or today, that was going through and saying uh, some city, um, I don't know how you pronounce it, in the Amazon, and just saying how the country's being absolutely devastated, yet at the same time, Bolsonaro has taken this extremely macho approach. Um, I think they described him as wading through crowds, shaking hands, saying it's nothing more than a little flu. What is the political imperative there? I mean, nationally, are people just not buying into the hype about coronavirus and he's judging that it's in his interest to be the tough guy here? Or how do you read that? 
Well, I think the article that you're citing was from the city of Manaus, which has been hit particularly hard. Um, there's a uh, Manaus is a, a city of several million people um, in the Amazon that's only accessible by plane, and it's been pleading with the federal government in Brasilia for for help. Um, there have been a number of reports that the uh, number of bodies they're burying per day, about 140, is about seven times more than what they're used to, and so they've been resorting to mass graves um, as a as a way to dispose uh, of bodies. Um, Brazil's been been hit extremely hard, and um, the president, as you mentioned, called this a gripezinho, just a little a little cold. Um, he said a whole bunch of other things, such as that uh, Brazilians are a, are a strong bunch. They can um, end up getting tossed into a, a sewer and uh, and come out just fine. Um, and that someone like him, uh, who has an athletic build, would be able to shake off the virus rather easily. And so there's been a messaging uh, mismatch coming out of Brasilia, which, as you said, was is full of a lot of sort of macho wording and has caused quite a bit of disinformation to go around uh, in Brazil. The other thing we have to remember is that Brazil is an extremely polarized country, much like the United States. There are certain folks in Bolsonaro's base um, who are really with him no matter what he does or says or, or, or how he behaves. Um, and that base is around 30 or so percent of the country. That's, it's a really rock solid uh, group of supporters. And so I think the calculation from his perspective is that when his reelection campaign rolls around in 2022, uh, he wants to be seen as the guy who pushed for the economic opening, who pushed for uh, the many people uh, who work in the informal sector in Brazil who have absolutely no uh, security because they don't work in the formal sector. They don't have access uh, to formal benefits. He wants to be um, uh, the person who spoke up uh, for those people. He wants to be the guy who says, uh, in two years' time, when perhaps the memory of coronavirus is not so fresh um, in most Brazilians' minds, I'm the guy who stood up for the economy. I'm the guy who, um, if the state governors wouldn't have done so much, uh, stay at home, so many stay-at-home orders, would have prevented the economy from sliding five or ten percent, uh, which are the predictions uh, for this year. I think that's his strategy um, going forward. Is you know he wants to be seen as the guy who advocates for the people without formal benefits, he wants to be the guy who's seen as advocating uh, for reopening and, and for business. Brian, how is this affecting the drug cartels and specifically drug trafficking from Latin America to the United States, given what I'd imagine has been pretty sapped demand from, from the U.S.? It's really interesting that you asked that question because we've seen cartels step into the void in a number of countries in really interesting ways. So in Brazil, if we want to stick with Brazil for a second, we've seen drug cartels um, quite cynically step into the void and say, look, in the state's absence and with the president, quote, unwilling to do the right thing, we are going to enforce curfews. We are going to enforce stay-at-home orders. We are going to use the resources that we have to hand out uh, relief kits to give PPE, personal protective equipment, to folks in the favelas, the slums, the informal areas where quite a few Brazilians uh, live. And this has been something that a number of the biggest groups in Brazil, the Primeiro Comando da Capital, the PCC, or the Comando Vermelho, the Red Command um, in Rio, these groups have actively engaged in governance, um, like I mentioned, which is, which is really, really interesting. And so their power is actually growing. In a place like Mexico, we saw um, uh, 
quite famously, the daughter of El Chapo, the former head of the Sinaloa cartel, handing out relief packages uh, to Mexicans on the street saying courtesy of El Chapo, courtesy of Sinaloa. Uh, and so these are direct um, uh, relief packages from the funds of groups uh, that are being used to increase their power, to increase uh, the, the public image uh, that they might have in, in people's minds, really filling the void uh, of the state where the state has been absent um, in its response. In terms of the, uh, the amount of cartel activity, it's difficult to track how much of their illicit product they're actually moving. But if we go by homicide figures as a proxy of, of how much they're engaged in their normal illicit activity, homicides rose in Mexico last month uh, in the middle of the coronavirus. Homicides, early indicators uh, seem to indicate, also rose in Brazil uh, in the middle of the coronavirus uh, epidemic. So I don't think these groups uh, are stopping, uh, despite the fact that the pandemic is raging. It sounds a little bit like China is stepping in and sending their own equipment to Europe to try to rehabilitate their image, uh, just like these cartels are. So it's an opportunity for all the bad actors to burnish their image a little bit. So you said the states are obviously failing in a lot of these countries. Are there any success stories in South America and Central America where the states are actually doing a very good job? I think that Peru has generally been pointed out uh, as a place that, yes, has quite a few cases uh, of coronavirus, but has managed uh, to, to handle um, the situation fairly well, given their limited uh, resources. I think um, everything that we've seen coming out of Chile also uh, seems to indicate that uh, They've been able to uh, keep things under control. They're the first, one of the first countries in the world that is actually going to move to a, uh, an antibodies card. So that means that everybody who uh, has been tested, tested continually, will be able to get um, a card that says they, they have antibodies uh, for the virus and, and therefore are uh, more uh, likely to be able to return to work safely uh, without contracting uh, the virus again. Again, the caveat being if the virus acts the same way as other viruses do, which is to say once you've had it or once you have antibodies, you're far less likely to contract it again. So this is a, a very interesting and I think forward-leaning experiment that, that Chile uh, is undertaking. But I would, I would highlight Chile uh, and Peru as, as countries that have done uh, particularly well. Colombia is another country that has really struggled under uh, the, the weight of a large migratory movement, which is to say uh, Venezuelan refugees in Colombia, uh, to be able to muster the resources uh, to respond. And I think it's done a remarkable job, given the fact that it, it has all of these strains being placed on it, not only migratory movements, but, uh, but an economy that wasn't doing so well, um, in addition to now coronavirus. Uh, it's done pretty well uh, with um, stay-at-home orders in major cities like Bogota. Um, another innovative thing that the Colombians did was to uh, stagger the amount of people that were out on the streets in Bogota. They had one day uh, where women were able to go out, um, and then they would alternate those days with men. And so you would see uh, in Bogota almost exclusively uh, men out in the streets one day and women uh, out in the streets uh, on other days. Can you talk about Venezuela a bit? I mean, it seems like a lot of countries that are kind of, it, it feels like this could go either way. On the one hand, you've got now governments taking complete control over their populations and their economies, which gives them more power to repress their people if they want. On the other hand, for a country that's already in an economic crisis, it seems like this could push it past the breaking point. So what, what's happening in Venezuela and how do you see this playing out? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So Venezuela, I've written a couple weeks ago in the Hill that I thought Venezuela was about to encounter um, what I call the perfect storm, which was a combination of, a, of an absolute uh, collapse in global oil prices, which is the bread and butter of the, of the Venezuelan economy, somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of that economy is based on oil exports um, and the coronavirus pandemic with what Johns Hopkins University says um, is the most fragile health system in the world. So you've got these two, uh, the, this one-two punch um, in Venezuela. Now, what we've seen is a lot of disinformation, a lot of information control, a lot of denial. Uh, it's difficult to get, to Matt's earlier point, reliable numbers, um, even during good times in a country like Venezuela. It's almost impossible to get reliable numbers during a time like this. So there was a period uh, about a week ago or a week and a half ago where numbers official government numbers were actually showing a decline in the number of cases um, in Venezuela. And we know that that's not true. And I think we actually know why that is now. Um, we know that's the case because uh, the regime was using only a form of testing um, that is a, a blood-based test, as opposed to the gold standard uh, nasal swab that we've heard so much about. And apparently this test can only um, detect the existence of coronavirus after about a week um, uh, in the person. Uh, and so it's not getting all of those asymptomatic cases. It's not getting all of those early cases. It's really only getting uh, a lot of those cases that are pretty far along. The other thing that it's not doing is the government is not certifying any cases that are not conducted, uh, tests rather, that are not conducted at one central lab in Caracas. And so you have an absolute uh, control of information flow out of the government of Venezuela. And that's why we saw uh, very, very incredibly numbers going down at one point um, about a week and a half ago. So we don't have good figures um, on or data on, on the actual numbers uh, in Venezuela, but we know that it's probably quite a few. Look, hospitals in Venezuela are crumbling. They have been for years. Uh, half of the country's doctors have migrated. Only about a third of the country's health clinics have running water on a weekly basis. Uh, this is a serious humanitarian catastrophe that the regime is exacerbating uh, by forcing people uh, uh, to stay at home, by going door to door uh, and enforcing that stay at home order, by using it as an excuse to clamp down on the opposition. There's a simultaneous operation that's going on right now, which is, which is basically going door to door and snatching uh, members of the opposition party at the same time as the stay at home order is being enforced. So. As you said, Max, this is an excuse uh, uh, to clamp down um, on both the information that's flowing out of the government as well as uh, on the opposition itself. Ryan, this may require you to put on an epidemiologist hat for a second here. I'm not sure if they taught you any epidemiology at Oxford, but I wanted to ask about the worst case trajectory for Latin America since that worst case is not too far from our present reality or present trajectory. And is South America or South and Central America pretty hell bent on a path toward herd immunity? Uh, assuming that the vaccine's 18 to 24 months away and that production of the vaccine probably wouldn't reach South America for at, at, a, at a mass scale for a little while after that. So, what's the outlook in terms of? of the trajectory of the disease in, in Central and South America? 
Well, Central America is very different. You've got a number of countries there that are really clamping down. For example, El Salvador is a country that's gotten a lot of attention, particularly for um, engaging in democratic backsliding uh, during, during, the, uh, during the stay-at-home orders. Uh, a number of very frightening uh, developments from the democracy uh, standpoint there, um, particularly the, the closing down of the National Assembly, uh, the, the jailing of people who do not abide by quarantine, which was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. The president, Nayib Bukele, has decided that he's not going to listen to the Supreme Court. He's decided to keep those people um, incarcerated nevertheless. Um, a number of other things that I, that I could go into, but there have been very few cases uh, of coronavirus uh, in El Salvador. Then on the other hand, you have a country that's not so far away, Nicaragua, which has completely denied the fact that the uh, coronavirus could be um, a threat to the country at all. And in fact, uh, two and, or two and a half weeks ago, there was a mandatory uh, political rally run by uh, Daniel Ortega's wife, first lady and vice president. There's a bit of a house of cards thing going on there. First lady and vice president, Rosario Murillo, called love in the time of COVID-19. Oh. And it was this very merry gathering uh, with thousands of people um, on the beach, uh, where who knows uh, how much uh, coronavirus was uh, was spread, and so you have very uh, varying responses um, in places like Central America that make it different to, difficult to make um, a, a very general or or broad brush uh, uh, claims about the epidemiology. But um, to the best of my knowledge, there aren't any countries that are explicitly um, going for a, a, a herd immunity. Uh, type of strategy. In terms of what we're going to see moving forward, look, I think, I think um, a number of countries in the region are going to have to do, quite frankly, uh, what the United States is going to have to do, which is eventually we're going to have to open up. Eventually, we're going to have to learn uh, to live uh, slightly differently, probably less socialization, probably wearing uh, masks, perhaps indefinitely um, into the future, especially as we uh, commute to and from work. Um, I think we're going to also have to learn how to live with a little bit more risk as well. Um, but, but th you know, this is a, this is a clear um, uh, uh, issue in a region like Latin America where uh, the public transportation uh, links aren't as good, um, where inequality uh, makes it such that exposure to the coronavirus is almost uh, exclusively in, in some of these environments, um, uh, lower and uh, middle, lower class. Um, et cetera, et cetera. There are, there are a lot of issues, I think, that are similar to what the developing world, the developed world will face, but there are a lot of um, issues that are, that are slightly different um, in, in a region like Latin America. And these countries are going to have to work through uh, some of those issues. What you said about Ortega is very interesting to me because it seems like with Trump and Bolsonaro, you, we kind of get the impression that coronavirus skepticism or denial is more of a right-wing phenomenon. But Ortega, isn't he a left-wing uh, dictator? Yeah, Ortega is an old Marxist uh, who um, is a good longtime ally of the Venezuelans, the Cubans, um, and also the Bolivians. Uh, there, there was a strong group called uh, the ALBA Alliance, which was the alternative alliance uh, for, for a, a left uh, America, which was a sort of anti-American uh, grouping of, of countries uh, that, that's already sort of had its, its heyday. But but Ortega was a, was a part of, of that group, um, and he's been the president of Nicaragua since 2007. Um, his denial, I think, is more um, on the basis of, 
the the threat that coronavirus could pose to uh, to his regime, particularly his his lack of response, the inability um, of the uh, Nicaraguan state to to be able to provide the services necessary to respond to a crisis of, of this scale. Uh, to make matters worse, um, quite a few people have also uh, medical professionals have also left Nicaragua in in the exodus of people. There was a financial crisis afflicting Nicaragua in April 2018. Ortega decided uh, to announce cuts to Social Security. Um, old folks came out into the streets of Managua to protest. The regime clamped down. Of course, it didn't look very good on social media uh, when you rough up some grandmothers in the streets. And so the, the country's restive student population descended upon the capital. Of course, they tried to repress again. And it's been an ongoing struggle uh, since April of, of 2018, even before uh, April of 2018, but the, the pace uh, and acceleration of both human rights violations and exodus of people um, has really accelerated since April of 2018. And much like Venezuela, Nicaragua has lost uh, many of its medical uh, professionals, particularly because Ortega forced them to deny uh, care to people who had been injured in protests um, to, uh, uh, to clamp down on the opposition, basically to provide incentive not to go out and protest because if you get roughed up, if you get injured, uh, we're going to deny you uh, care. An explicit contravention of the Hippocratic Oath, uh, by the way, which um, you know doctors have to uh, provide care to whoever needs it, regardless of their status um, uh, in any sort of political conflict. So Nicaragua has lost a number of its medical personnel, and I think that his denial comes from the fact that the, the state is just not capable um, of being able to uh, provide the types of services uh, and engage in the type of governance that they need to, uh, to be able to, to get over uh, a crisis uh, of this scale. And so the president himself disappeared for about 33 or 34 days, which was a personal record for him, a guy who has um, a, a, a history of disappearing from time to time uh, for extended periods of time and then resurfacing. And so much like in North Korea, people were talking about in Nicaragua, has Daniel Ortega died, is his wife in power? All sorts of rumors were circulating, uh, and then finally he uh, he reappeared about two weeks ago uh, to make a speech that coronavirus was not uh, the threat that people are talking about. Nicaraguans are going to continue as normal. Uh, we're a, you know we're a strong bunch. Uh, all of the all of the sort of usual rhetoric that we hear from from these types of leaders. Right. Can you talk a bit too about uh, immigration? Obviously, given that this is an election year. And at least in the last election, one of our president's main, you know, political points and something he relied on heavily during the campaign was illegal immigration, the theme of the wall. Well, how is this going to impact that? Do we expect to see more immigration, less immigration, given the U.S. economy is in a dull drum, will fewer people be coming here? Or will more people be coming because these other Central American economies are going to be struggling so much? Look, in the short term, I think we're going to see much less immigration because, as you guys well know, you've got a lot of countries basically on lockdown, right? As I mentioned, El Salvador, no one in, no one out. Uh, it was one of the first countries to sort of close up um, and say, you know, no, no one is coming in, no one is going out. Um, and we're very unlikely to see uh, much immigration in the next, um, you know, month, month and a half, because every country is pretty much on lockdown. People are under stay-at-home orders. Now, as the economies open up, and as people take full stock of just how decimated uh, the region or their national economy actually is, um, we might see more movement. Remember that countries in Central America, which 
produced the bulk of the migrants in the southwest border in the United States were already in pretty bad shape uh, before the pandemic. So we, we really don't know how they're going to emerge uh, from the pandemic. Even a country that was in much better shape, like Mexico, which had had about a decade of, of growth, uh, could have a collapse of about 6% uh, this year. Uh, their banks' uh, internal estimates that I've, that I've seen said that a double-digit collapse is not out of the question this year. So this is an economy that's in much better shape than, than the Central American economies. Who knows how much they're going to decline this year? Um, we could see some, some serious uh, migratory movements towards the southwest border as people take full stock of just how few jobs there are, just how bad the situation has gotten, um, and as the full realization is, is driven home, I think that this is going to take much longer to recover from than people were saying initially, that this is probably not going to be a V-shaped recovery, as, as many economists were talking about um, at the beginning. There are some things that have just been destroyed. There is no sort of going back to uh, what we knew before. Ryan, we talked about Brazil a little earlier. I think in a late March blog post, you talked about the early reaction from Brazil, and and you spoke about the polarization in the country in terms of how this treatment by by Bolsonaro was received. And my question is: Is there a cultural difference in the approach that Brazilians are taking toward the coronavirus versus Americans? You know. Americans are notoriously afraid of disease and, and, and can panic easily. Is there a different cultural approach in Brazil? Well, I think it's important to remember that quite a few people who are at the greatest risk, um, people who live in informal dwellings, people who live in favelas, people who live very close to one another in very packed communities where even uh, staying at home is not a guarantee uh, or near guarantee that you will stay uh, coronavirus free, they are very used to uh, living with uh, the presence of pathogens. There is, in any given year, quite a few cases of infectious diseases like tuberculosis in Brazil because there are so many informal dwellings where people are literally living on top of each other and in conditions that are sometimes very unsanitary, where there's no official uh, sewage system. And so you know, these, these are the kinds of things that uh, people encounter on a day-to-day basis. And I imagine that, you know, it makes them uh, a little bit more sort of willing to put up with the risk um, or acclimated to the, to the heightened risk um, of contracting uh, certain diseases because it is, unfortunately, a matter of routine life for some people in urban settings that are, that are very densely uh, populated and, and in very informal uh, settings where, where infrastructure is, is not, you know, anything that we would be used to. And so, you know, from that perspective, yeah, there, there are quite a few people who are, are, are just sort of used to um, exposure to, to risk when it comes to uh, infectious diseases um, on, a, on a scale or in a way that I don't think the average American would have a very um, uh, easy time uh, understanding. There's also a great quote from that Wall Street Journal article we talked about earlier. I think it ends with one of the Brazilians saying, if it's a choice between getting the coronavirus and dying of hunger, I prefer not to die of hunger, so I'm going back to work. Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was an informal uh, uh, seller. It was someone I, I, I mentioned before, the, you know, the size of the informal market in a, in a country like, uh, like Brazil. Uh, the danger that um, uh, people face if they, if they stop working, they simply you know, have no income. They don't have that backstop 
because they don't work in, in the formal sector. Uh, and so, you know, that quote uh, says, really says it all. And I, I remember that article distinctly. Um, you know, I'd rather die uh, on, on the street selling my wares as opposed to uh, dying of hunger. I guess so we're almost out of time here. So maybe final question wrapping up. How much, I mean, how catastrophic do you think this will be on just the South American economy in general? I saw that Argentina is already talking about defaulting on uh, their bot or their debt for the ninth time. Is this, uh, do you think that'll happen? And just how big are these ramifications going to be, do you think? The answer to your question directly is probably yes. I, I think that um, if to all of our listeners out there who might be betting people, uh, you should probably always bet on Argentina <laughs> not, not managing to, uh, to, to, to pay its debt or asking for uh, major restructuring. But <laughs> ser- uh, to, to, to be more serious, uh, look, even in good times, um, Latin America uh, usually grows at a much slower rate than, uh, than other regions. Um, the IMF did a report uh, towards the end of 2019 that predicted that yet again, 2020, uh, Latin America would be the region uh, that grew the slowest, somewhere around one, one and a half percent. In 2018, they did another one of those reports for 2019 and identified Latin America as the slowest uh, growing region in 2019. So this is a, this is a recurring um, uh, phenomenon in Latin America, which is slow growth, countries that just can't seem to, uh, to get moving, even in good times. Um, we, we see very rarely developing economies in Latin America getting up to that 5 6% uh, mark as, as they do in, in some parts of Asia. So uh, this can be very difficult for a lot of countries in, in, in Latin America, many of which are dependent uh, upon exports of natural resources like oil or minerals. Whose, whose markets are, are tanking. And you have a lot of people, like I said, in informal sectors who are looking for help and the finances just aren't there to be able to pass large-scale uh, uh, recovery bills, uh, economic uh, stimulus packages. Uh, and so this is going to be a, a very difficult period of time for uh, Latin American countries and for the United States as well, quite frankly, because you know, a, lot of our, um, a lot of our supply chains are integrated with countries uh, in Latin America, particularly in Central America, and especially in Mexico. Uh, and so this is a region to look at moving forward when it comes to the American recovery uh, as well, because the supply chains are so integrated. All right, we have to leave it there because I need to go pull all my money out of the Argentinian bond market. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys, for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you, Ryan, for coming on to the show today. That was incredibly helpful, and it really does make you realize that there's a lot going on in Latin America and how closely that region affects the United States. And so really interesting stuff. And Matt Wine said, I think you have a couple comments to read. Yes, we've got two more. As always, if you liked this podcast, please leave a review and rating on iTunes. One from a man named or woman named Ghazi says, love the podcast. As an AEI Enterprise Emeritus member, I really appreciate being able to access content in this format. The podcast will help grow the Enterprise Club and AEI rocks. Thank you, Ghazi. Thank you, Ghazi. A second one from, a, from someone named Yurt, Y with a bunch of U's, RT, says, edifying and engaging. Max, other Max, and Matt managed to consistently produce episodes with prominent politicians, intellectuals, and journalists. I found their content informative and entertaining. I love the Andrew Sullivan episode. It was the most interesting episode because Tui took a stand. Well, Good for you, Tui. Unlike Custer's stand, mine worked out, and I'm very glad to hear it. I don't know. I think well, Sullivan might have got the better of you. <laughs> well, he did. 
to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Banter. We hope that you're all staying healthy and that pretty soon we'll be back to do this in person, although who knows at this point. So stay tuned for another episode coming soon and stay healthy.